0: Sweetie. hello, and welcome to episode thirteen of City Break, St. Petersburg, which I'm going to call Capital City of Ballet. Seems to me that you really can't separate St. Petersburg from ballet because the ballet is as old in the city as the city itself. It was begun very early in the 18th century, and it's been there ever since, all through the various turbulent changes of the revolution and the Soviet era and everything. Whatever else they gave up on, they never gave up on ballet. And today, although, yes, it's certainly important to tourists and it's something that they market to tourists, it absolutely is something that Russians, St Petersburgers, are very proud of. So for today's episode, I'm planning a little run-through of the history of ballet in the city of St Petersburg, followed by some potted biographies of some of the really big dancer names of people who are connected with the city. In his book, Leningrad's Ballet, the writer John Gregory opens as follows. Russian ballet began with 12 little girls. He's talking about the era of the Empress Anna, who liked dancing and liked pageantry, and instituted a ballet school in the attic of the Windsor Palace, this being in 1738. So some little girls were chosen, some of them were servants' daughters, some of them were daughters of foreign dignitaries. A French ballet master was brought over from Paris, and it was decided to fetch some... Partners for the girls from the Naval Cadet School just across the road and the ballet school got going. Under the Empress Elizabeth, a few years later, she too was very fond of dancing, so she continued the tradition of bringing in French and Italian ballet masters and really helped to make ballet part of the court festivities. Under Catherine the Great, yet more ballet. She it was, along with her son Paul, who set up the Imperial Theatres So an idea of state subsidy for theatres to help the artists train and produce the performances that were going to delight the imperial court. The beginning of sponsorship, if you like. In the early 19th century, the writer Pushkin included a reference to ballet in his long poem, Eugene Onegin, in which he really manages to sum up the excitement of the beginning of a ballet on stage, writing the following lines. The rustling curtain has gone up, and there, resplendent in the middle, sways to the music of the fiddle istamina her bevy there surround that creature half of air 1847 was a very important date for ballet in st petersburg because that marked the arrival of the french ballet master marius petipa he came to st petersburg while he was there he produced over 70 ballets including some of the really famous ones the first swan lake was his for example Productions like Giselle and Sleeping Beauty, which are still seen today, started with his work. When I went to the Mariinsky Theatre, I was given a booklet published by the Ministry of Culture Russian Federation, all about Marius Petipa, in which the following wording is used. Over almost 60 years, dedicated to the theatre in St. Petersburg, as a choreographer and a teacher, he trained several generations of Russian dancers, staged more than 70 ballets, and with his long and steady dedication transferred the world's ballet capital to St. Petersburg. Everything that was anything in ballet of the latter half of the 19th century was created in St. Petersburg. It goes on to say that his ballets combined all sorts of things, vivid character dances, spectacles, big scenes, pantomime, and that it was, quote, the crowning glory of 19th century ballet and the starting point for new works in the 20th century. Actually, in the early days, Petipa himself was a dancer and uh, in the same programme that I was given, there's a description here which says the following. The first performance of Paquita took place in the presence of Emperor Nicholas I. A week after this debut, I was given a ring with a marquise decorated with a ruby and 18 diamonds. So yes, the ballet was marvellous, the ballet was splendid, but great efforts were made too to make it something for everybody. For example, in the 1890s, There were often matinee performances, especially for schools, and one of these is described by the ballerina Tamara Casavina. She's writing about December 6th, 1896, which was Emperor Nicholas II's name day, so one of these special matinee performances was given to celebrate that. She describes seeing troops of young people in all their different uniforms, girls in uniform dresses, blue, red, pink and white, coming to see the performance. And she writes the following, quote, Every child received a box of sweets with a portrait of either the Tsar, Tsarita or Tsarevich on the lid. In the interval, tea and refreshments were served in several foyers, and the waiting staff wore their gala-red livery with the imperial eagles. Cool almond milk, deliciously fragrant, was a special feature of this treat. And on one particular day, she'd been dancing in the chorus, and she was taken up to the imperial box to receive sweets. She describes curtsying to the emperor, kissing the hand of the Tsarita and being asked by the Tsar who was the little girl who danced the golden fish, at which point she stepped forward and made a deep curtsy. Looking back on the end of the 19th century from the 1930s, when she published her book Theatre Street, Tamara Kasavina remembers how very conservative ballet audiences were in those days. So she writes, for example, A new venture... The slightest variation from the old canons were heresy to the ballet an occasional modification of a step, an irreverence, as well as a disappointment. There were some favourite steps eagerly awaited. One could feel from the stage how the whole audience stiffened in breathless expectation of a favourite passage. The passage well executed, the whole theatre burst out clapping in measure to the music. She writes of how popular the performances were and how people would Queue up from eight o'clock in the morning, even on the very coldest days, to get tickets, waiting sometimes ten hours, although, as she puts it, even that by no means insured a ticket. She talks, too, of how members of the audience would wait in the auditorium long after the lights had gone down, clapping and cheering, and that eventually, after the safety curtain had come down and the dust sheets were being put over the props, there would be what she calls a last rite to be performed, waiting at the stage door. Manifestations at the stage door varied in proportion to the popularity of each artist. They ranged from silence to delirious outbursts. Sometimes a group of young people would follow their idol, keeping at a distance a silent escort. So really very much the adulation of the 19th century audiences for their beloved ballet. In fact, by the end of the 19th century, things were beginning to change a little bit. In his book, Leningrad's Ballet, John Gregory describes this using words like a new bravura, dynamism, potent sexuality and, gasp, the introduction of the short tutu. There was more influence from Italian ballet and, as John Gregory puts it, quote, Russian charm and grace was added to the strength, multiple pirouettes and flashing beats and speed of the Italian style. He writes of their pyrotechnics which made the audience gasp with wonder. This was the era then of the dancers that you probably will have heard of, Anna Pavlova and Vaslav Nijinsky. More about them a bit later. It was also the era of Diaghilev and his Ballet Russe, who brought new style to ballet and also toured extensively abroad and took Russian ballet out into other countries. All of this though, as so many other things in Russia generally, and St. Petersburg in particular, were coming to an end. 1916 was the end of an era. The beautiful theatre was still there, blue and gold hangings, and reverence and excitement, but things were changing. A French visitor, Maurice Peliolo, an ambassador, describes a visit to the theatre in September 1916. And this is what he writes, In the intervals, the boxes came to life with the irresponsible chatter which made the bright eyes of the women sparkle with merriment. Irksome thoughts of the present sinister visions of war and the melancholy prospects of the future vanished as if by magic the moment the orchestra struck up. An air of pleasant unreality was in every face. And sure enough, many of the best dancers fled abroad, Diagolov went abroad, but interestingly, for all the changes that Lenin did make all over Russia and all over the city, he didn't completely do away with the imperial theatres. He had them renamed, called academic theatres, but they were kept open, The Mariinsky, as it had been known, became the Kirov, named after a hero of the revolution, and the sort of ballet that was performed certainly changed, so fairy tales were out and in came very down-to-earth realism, social and political themes, ballets like the Red Poppy and the Bronze Horseman. During World War II, the Kirov was evacuated, but the ballet school was kept going and after the war, the theatre opened up again. In fact, that became a new golden era. In 1961, for example, the Kirov dancers came to Covent Garden in London, and that was much written about and talked about. One journalist wrote, for example, Like wild Cossack horsemen, they leapt and whirled, defying the laws of gravity. They were using words like frenzy and controlled panache. This was the era of Rudolf Nureyev, more about him in a minute, and Natalia Makarova and Mikhail Baryshnikov. The travel writer Colin Thubron went to visit the Kirov in the 1970s, I think, and writes about it in his wonderful book Among the Russians, which I really do recommend. It's not all about St. Petersburg, but it tells you lots about Russia in Soviet times. On his visit to the Kirov, he is struck really by the fact that, yes, the finery was still there, but the audiences seemed very Soviet. This is what he writes about it. I had never seen a more ravishing auditorium, five tiers of gold, white and blue, and a blue-gold curtain about to lift on Swan Lake. But beneath it, the audience, plumped out in its best clothes, was innocently styleless. Under banks of chandeliers and cupids, lounging among gilded foliage, they sat in ill-fitting brown and grey suits or outlandish flowered dresses. The old imperial box was stuffed with municipal dignitaries and their wives. They cheered tremendously. Bringing things up to date, I can report that I went to the Mariinsky, as it's now called again. It was only the Kirov in the Soviet era. So we went in 2018 to find that actually the audiences had spruced up majorly from the 70s, as described by Colin Thubron. Going to the ballet seemed to be a major event. People dressed up for it. In fact, it was a major event. We discovered when we got there that the Sleeping Beauty that we were going to watch was going to be, wait for it, three hours and 50 minutes long. It was going to comprise a prologue and three acts. And between each of these things, there would be three, yes, three half-hour intervals, a chance to parade about in your finery, perhaps buy a little champagne and some caviar from one of the snack bars, in commas. In fact, they had two sorts of caviar, pink and black, and little stalls full of the most exquisite French patisserie. What we saw was very much a traditional Russian ballet. The programme informed us that the choreography was based on the text by Marius Petipa. And not only that, they had used original drawings and photographs to reproduce the decor and the costumes. It was actually billed as, quote, a revival of the 1890 production, although the revival team had done their work in 1999. There was Tchaikovsky's music, of course, the libretto and the choreography by Petipa, and all the very same characters who had so enchanted the 19th century audiences. So lots of groups of fairies and peasants and spinners and huntsmen, um, main characters, Prince Charming, Princess Aurora, and a whole host of dukes and baronesses, etc., And then there were the particular characters, so the four main fairies, the Diamond Fairy and the Sapphire Gold and Silver Fairies. And then a host of characters from fairy tales, so Puss in Boots is there, Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, Cinderella, all there. And a character called Blue Bird, who seemed to Russian audiences to be just as familiar as all those others are to us. The cast names all looked pretty Russian to me, and each of the four half-hour sections had in it children from the Mariinsky Ballet School and the Vaganova Ballet Academy. Some of them, tiny little dots, didn't look more than about six, but there may have been, say, 30 of them, very well disciplined. They didn't have all that much to do, but they did it completely in unison, and there were older children as well. So the whole thing was lots of parading, lots of grand gestures, and spots for everyone to show what they could do. So pas de deux, pas de quatre and the character dances were labelled in the English programme as pas de caractère. I would like to take a little detour now and talk about the ballet school as opposed to the ballet company because I got the feeling that that really is just as much a part of St Petersburg traditions as the ballet company itself. So it was founded by the Emperor Paul and from 1801 onwards, it has existed to train dancers for the Mariinsky. And there's lots written about the very strict routines and particular ambiance of the place. Not least by the dancer Anna Pavlova herself, who attended there as a pupil, and in her biography later, wrote about its very particular attention to detail and the fact that they were, as she put it, surrounded by beauty. So really, they had the highest standards of everything, she thought. Physical, mental, moral, spiritual, all these aspects were considered. She wrote, for example, that since she joined the Imperial School, she had, Never seen a badly painted, cheap or stupid picture. Never read an ill-written, tawdry or trashy book. Never seen acting that was not of the finest. Never attended an ill-made play or a badly sung opera. Never eaten a badly cooked or ill-chosen meal. Never slept in a poorly ventilated room neither worked nor played too long, never witnessed gross manners. My general education, she writes, from mathematics and languages to science, came to me from the finest teachers procurable. The special training in dancing was in the hands of Marius Petipa and his associates. There's also a fictionalised account of The Life of Anna Pavlova, written by an American author called Gladys Malvern, in which she gives lots of details about what life in the school was like. So she talks about the plain brown cashmere dresses that the girls all had to wear and the fact that their hair, whether it was straight or curly, had to be brushed rigidly back, straight and tight from the forehead and braided in one single plait, tied at the end with a black ribbon. She describes the girls getting up early, washing in cold water and then presenting themselves, with their dancing dresses on and their hair combed properly, for inspection every single morning. In her biography of the dancer Nijinsky, the author Lucy Moore also tells us quite a lot about the school, writing, for example, The ground floor of the school housed the Mariinsky's make-up, wardrobe, set and administrative departments. On the first and second floors, vast practice rooms with sloping floors that replicated the slants of the Mariinsky's stage were lined with mirrors and windows and punctuated by portraits of ballet-loving tsars and tsarenas. Inside the compound were separate dormitories, classrooms and infirmaries for the boys and girls, a bathhouse, even a church. Naturally, the students had their own chiropodist. And she goes on to describe the routine, breakfast, walking round the block to warm up, and then a morning of ballet lessons, lunch at 12, followed by academic lessons, dinner at 5 and then more classes in, specialised areas like music, ballroom dancing, character dance, fencing and gymnastics. And all of this was followed by supper at nine and then bed. In addition to all of this, there would be rehearsals for performances in the theatre itself, something that, as I've just been saying, is still done today. So hopefully now you've got a little idea about the history of the ballet company and the history of the school. But I think you really can't mention the Mariinsky without saying a little bit more about some of the wonderful dancers who were connected to it. Colin Thuberon again in Among the Russians put this point as follows quote, this I remembered was the nursery of Pavlova Kasavina, Nijinsky Olonova, Nureyev Makarova. Beneath the classical discipline an ancient fire was breathing up and spilling into the audience some of whom sprang to their feet at the end of the Black Swan's 32 fuete and drowned the music in cheers. So this feeling that everything's building on what's come before and that all these dancers' work is still there somehow in the the way that their traditions are carried on. So I've picked out five people that I'd like to say just a little bit more about. And the first one is Vaslav Nijinsky, born in 1889. And we know from his biography that at the age of five, he made his first public performance in Odessa, where he danced a Cossack dance. And from then on, that's really what he wanted to do, dance. So he enrolled at age 17 at the Imperial Theatre School and did his first solo in 1905. He played a fawn in a ballet called Actis and Galatea and it's said that he overshadowed everybody and was spotted immediately as somebody that you really would have to watch. We know that in 1906 he partnered Anna Pavlova and that when he danced the Blue Bird in Sleeping Beauty he very much wanted to bring his own take to it he persuaded Mariinsky to let him choose the costume himself. This was deemed to be quite unusual because the costume was always the costume that was worn by everybody who danced the role. But he decided he really wanted to look like a bird and do his own makeup. And he's described as having been able to, quote, lose his human contours and design a bird's flight in the air. Perhaps the greatest role was when he danced Petrushka in 1911. That's the role of the sad clown. Stravinsky saw that performance and said that he was just perfect. He said he was, quote, the most exciting human I have ever seen on a stage. His beautiful face could become the most powerful actor's mask I have ever seen. In the following year, 1912, he and the dance that he performed and the ballet that he was in hit the headlines, and not always for good reasons. And that was a ballet called L'après-Midi d'Enfant, which was performed on May the 12th in 1912. In the biography, Lucy Moore introduces the ballet as follows, It tells of the hesitant sexual awakening of a young fawn who is fascinated by a group of bathing nymphs. At his approach they flee, one returning briefly to retrieve their discarded veils and to taunt him before being frightened away. The fawn bears off a forgotten veil in triumph. It's said that Nijinsky, in his role as the fawn, was thrilling, absolutely virile, powerful movements, and yet mixed with a very tender, touching way that he caressed the nymph's veil. He then created what became known as an unforgettable moment with very suggestive sexual gestures, which is, of course, what led to the scandal. It said that it caused a sensation, the audience was stunned into silence, and the following day the newspapers let rip. So the Figaro didn't review the ballet at all, just ran a front-page article denouncing his filthy gesture. He was defended, however, by the sculptor Auguste Rodin, who wrote that he had really enjoyed Nijinsky's beauty and expressiveness, and he wrote, I wish that every artist who truly loves his art might see this perfect personification of the ideals of the beauty of the ancient Greeks. The headlines got as far as America. The Pittsburgh Gazette wrote in huge headline, Wicked Paris shocked at last, so Nijinsky had certainly made his mark. There was a sad ending to his life. He had been the impresario Diaghilev's lover, but they quarrelled, and Diaghilev responded by not giving him roles to dance, and finally he went mad and ended up in an asylum. But it would be nice to end remembering him at his height with a quote from Charlie Chaplin, no less, who wrote, I have seen few geniuses in this world, and Nijinsky was one of them. He was hypnotic, godlike, his somberness suggesting moods of other worlds. Every movement was poetry, every leap a flight into strange fancy. At roughly the same time as Nijinsky was dancing Anna Pavlova, who also became an iconic figure. She too had been at the Imperial Theatre School. She'd been taught by Marius Petipa and she debuted with the Mariinsky in 1898. She danced many different ballets, but perhaps her signature role was in The Swan, which was later renamed The Dying Swan. She joined Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and went on tour and was one of those dancers that people came especially to see. She was a bit of a prima donna, I think, in certain ways. We know, for example, that she had refused to dance the role of Giselle opposite Nijinsky, writing, quote, "'I do not wish to share with Nijinsky my success before the public,' I do not wish to see ovations being given to Nijinsky for a performance in which I, too, dance. Let the public that comes to see Pavlova see only Pavlova. She, too, left Russia after the revolution and spent, I think, about 20 years touring, mainly on her own, travelling to all sorts of places, first where ballet was popular and then to many other places where it wasn't really known. She introduced ballet to whole areas of the world and it really was her all-consuming passion. She contracted pneumonia and was told that she would need surgery if she was going to be able to recover, but that this would probably mean that she wouldn't be able to dance again. And she refused to have the surgery, saying apparently, if I can't dance, then I'd rather be dead. And she did die of pleurisy just before the age of 50. She was remembered ever after by so many people, including Frederick Ashton, who said that he himself had been inspired to dance after he'd seen her perform in 1917 saying, quote, Her name can never die, for such a living and passionate spirit must continue to haunt the world to which she gave so much delight and inspiration. I think we ought to mention, too, Sergei Diaghilev, born in 1872, who became the impresario who really drove ballet forward in St. Petersburg and then afterwards in the rest of Europe and all over the world because of his complete, all-consuming passion for it. It said that he oversaw absolutely everything, the costumes, the makeup, the backdrops, he gave the press briefings, he devised the programmes, he oversaw the photo sessions, etc, etc. A control freak, if you will. In the Jinsky biography, there's a reference to him, which Lucy Moore writes, he could spot a single bulb that had burned out among the stage lights, or hear when the orchestra's second trumpet was playing flat. He began his company in 1909 after the Tsar had withdrawn financial support, decided he would get a group of dancers together and go it alone, and then he started taking them on tours, notably to Paris. We have uh, a cable that he wrote to the Paris Opera House saying the following, No opera this year, bringing brilliant ballet company, 80 strong, best soloists, 15 performances, repertory can be enlarged. Three ballets per programme, start big publicity. This enterprise lasted for 20 years, toured extensively in Europe, but also in the USA and Canada and South America. He died quite suddenly in 1929 in Venice of blood poisoning, and it was said that his death really signalled the end of an extraordinarily creative 20 years in the history of ballet music and stage design, and that his uncompromising ideals would remain an influence evermore. His death made the front pages in Europe and in America, where lots and lots of obituaries were written about him, but notably, in fact, in Russia, there was only the briefest of mentions of him, presumably because he was deemed to have betrayed the country by going abroad. Another ballerina from the same era as Nijinsky and Anna Pavlova that I'd like to mention briefly is Matilde Kaczynska, who was born in 1872. She was very much a prima ballerina at the Mariinsky, but she was also well-known for having been first the muse and then the mistress of Tsar Nicholas II, this being before he was married. They had a four-year love affair, and at the end of which he gave her a palace to live in, a building, in fact, which you can visit. It's the building which houses the Museum of Political History. And if you go there, there's an exhibition on her as well that you can have a look at. When I visited, I bought a little booklet about her, and the opening pages very much stress her talents as a ballerina. Writing, for example, Matilda Kishynska was a ballerina of extraordinary abilities and excellence, and the first Russian dancer to master thirty-two consecutive fouettés, which brought her fame and glory. But it goes on to explain that yes, she was also the centre of the scandalous relationship with Nicholas II, and to say rather sarcastically that she seemed to have done rather well out of this. So, for example. Quote, Malicious tongues insinuated that almost half of the finest jewellery made by Fabergé was kept in the ballerina's jewel box. There is no doubt that Mathilde and Nicholas had a very close relationship, one which became known throughout St. Petersburg. Some of Nicholas's own diary entries describe visits to her house, eating with her in the evening, staying until 4 a.m., he wrote, for example, on March the 3rd, 1893, quote, I went home at 12.30am, changed my clothes and set off to MK and stayed until morning. There are reports in the booklet of an evening when he went to visit her and decided to impersonate her Red Riding Hood dance, tying a handkerchief round his head, finding a basket to carry and trying to dance the role. There are photographs which he presented to her inscribed, To my dear Panny and many other references, both in his diaries and in her autobiography. People began to talk and worry that maybe he would want to marry her. There were rumours that he was going to renounce the Russian throne, perhaps inherit just the crown of Poland rather than the whole Russian empire, and marry her. But as the booklet says, in fact, they think that Nicholas always did remember what his role was going to be. Quote, Actually, Nicholas was enthralled by the ballerina, but he never forgot his duty to his parents and to Russia. He realised that the social gap between them was insuperable. Moreover, Nicholas ultimately decided it was time for him to end his bachelorship. He confessed to his friend, I want to marry and settle down to family life. In her autobiography, Mathilde writes quite movingly of their last meeting and how unhappy she was at the parting. She also goes on to say that actually he supported her from afar for the rest of her life. He intervened, for example, when she had an argument with the director of the ballet company. He wanted to fine her for some unauthorised change of costume, and she complained to Nicholas, who by this stage was the Tsar. About this, she writes, "'I could not submit to such an insult, and having no other resources, "'I applied to the Tsar once more and begged him to have the fine remitted.' The next day, a notice went up on the board. The director of the Imperial Theatres hereby orders a remission of the fine imposed on the ballerina Kaczynska. We know that the director then resigned his post because I think he felt that if the Tsar was going to interfere, there'd be no end to what he might be made to do. So they went their separate ways, and we know that Kashinska fled Russia after the revolution and spent the rest of her life abroad, dying in Paris in 1971 at the ripe old age of 99. And lastly, of course, we must mention Rudolf Nureyev, born on a train in a faraway province, but who saw his first ballet at the age of seven, something called Song of the Cranes, and said that from then on he felt called to dance. I knew, he wrote, that's it, that's my life, that will be my function, I wanted to be everything on the stage. And so, at the age of 17, he went to St. Petersburg and joined the Kirov to train. People who remembered him from that time described his obsession, the fact that he would practice non-stop and that if ever he wasn't dancing, he was throwing himself into music or art books or visiting the Hermitage in search of inspiration. They described him as, quote, some kind of fanatic. But when, in December 1959, he arrived on stage playing Albrecht in the Ballet Giselle, he made such an impression that everybody knew that this was going to be a man to watch. He was seen as new and exciting right from his very first entrance on stage, described as, quote, like a hooligan boy with his rebel mop of hair. People knew immediately that the Kirov traditions were instantly being overturned. He became more and more popular, fans arriving in ever greater numbers to see him. Throughout all his time at the Kirov, he had a disregard for the rules that was always going to get him into trouble. This applied firstly to ballet itself... In a biography of him entitled Rudolf Nureyev, written by Julie Kavanagh, she describes an incident that happened when he was supposed to be training for a new role. He was working with a wonderfully named teacher called Mikhail Mikhailovich Mikhailov, who had certain ideas about what the role should be like, and Rudolf very much didn't agree. So this is what she writes. Quote, after giving much time and thought to his new role, the playful lover from the Cervantes novel, Rudolf had developed a particular effect he wanted to achieve, a more distinct colouring of the classical steps with a Spanish idiom. Instead of running on stage to perform his variation, he decided to come out slowly and deliberately, like a toreador approaching a bull. Dismayed at Rudolph's deviation from the correct tempo, Mikhailov stopped him and ordered him to do it again. The dancer quietly repeated his entrance, only this time it was even slower. Rudik, do it quickly just for Mikhailov, and then you can perform it on stage the way you want to do it. Why should I, he demanded, why should I fake it for him if I'm going to do it my way on the stage? More dangerously, he refused to join in with all the things the Communist Party wanted him to do as well. So, for example, he refused to join the commissomol because, as he put it, I have far more important things to do with my time than waste it on that kind of rubbish. When the company started to tour abroad, in Paris, for example, he insisted on going out and about in the evenings, leaving the restaurant he was supposed to be in, etc. And this despite the fact that he knew very well the KGB were keeping a very close eye on him. All of this culminated, of course, in the end, in his defecting to the West. The company were on tour and they were leaving Paris Airport for London to continue dancing there when Nureyev was pulled aside and told that he was being sent back to Moscow, probably as some sort of punishment for this reckless behaviour that he'd been indulging in. And this, for him, was the crunch moment. The incident is described very excitingly in Julie Kavanagh's book. I do recommend that you read it. But basically, he managed to separate himself from the company, present himself to some officials, and claim asylum. He wrote movingly about the effect this had on him in his later autobiography. He wrote about his struggles at the Kirov with the traditionalists, who wanted, as he put it, absolutely nothing changed. Not a costume, not a wig, and the fact that he wanted to be in the group that wanted to modernise dance a little bit and that this made him very badly thought of people wouldn't let him dance they didn't always give him the roles that he thought were his due and so he felt that he had no choice but to leave but he did write about this decision quote, "i will never return to my country but i truly believe that i will never be happy in yours" dancing wise though things went really well He stunned audiences wherever he danced. In London, for example, in February 1962, it was claimed that 70,000 people had failed to get tickets to see him dance Giselle with Margot Fontaine. For one of those performances, there were a record 23 curtain calls, and of his partnership with Margot Fontaine, the ballet mistress Ninette de Valois wrote the following, Emotionally, technically, physically... In every way, they were just meant to meet on this earth and dance together. While all this was going on, in the background back in Russia, things were difficult. In his absence, Nureyev had been found guilty of, quote, betraying the motherland and sentenced to seven years in prison. So that was proof, if it were needed, that he really wouldn't ever be able to go home. It's said that when he first came to Western Europe, he wanted to bring Russian dance here but that later he wanted to return to Russia and teach what he'd learnt. He danced all over the world to great acclaim, not just in Europe, Paris, Vienna, London, but also in New York and in Japan. And I think it's probably fair to say that he became perhaps the most iconic of all the highly iconic Russian dancers. He did manage to return to Russia. As he put it, quote, I left the USSR when the construction of the Berlin Wall had begun, and I returned when it was demolished. So his wish did come true, he got to dance once more on the stage of the Kirov. The ballet that he danced in had to be, the role had to be rewritten for him, to take account of the fact that, of course, he was twenty years older. But he was absolutely determined to do it, as he put it himself, I've got to dance on this stage, it is like a pilgrimage for my soul, a kind of purification. Perhaps one last sign that he never really acclimatised completely to the West, even though it was only there that he could dance the roles he wanted to dance and do them as he saw fit. So then, I hope I've persuaded you that ballet is St. Petersburg, and St. Petersburg is ballet. I think if you do manage to visit, you really do have to try and get to see at least one performance. But having said all of that, I'd like to end by just saying that how ironic it is really that although Russian ballet came to mean... So much and to be seen as something that really represented the country at its best. You do have to recognise that almost all the famous dancers of the twentieth century, in fact, ended up leaving Russia and dancing elsewhere. So, then, just before signing off, a little pointer towards next week's episode, which I hope you'll be able to join me for, where I'm going to think about art in St Petersburg. Obviously, the first word that springs to mind is the Hermitage, that amazing, enormous art gallery. But I'm going to focus actually a little bit more on other things, on the Russian Museum, for example, and the places in St. Petersburg where you can see truly Russian art. So, a taste of what's to come. But for the moment, I would just like to finish by thanking you again very much for listening. Spasibo, and wishing you goodbye. Dosvidanya.